If we are more aware of what we put in our bodies than what we put on them, how can fashion learn from food? Season 10 aims to digest how we can apply the principles of farm to fork to fashion. And if we beckon chefs to serve a sense of self on our plates, how does fashion follow suit? This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with the fashionable forces in food, who not only bring together beauty and purpose, but are able to cook up stories with heart, humour, and of course, great taste. Today, I'm chatting with Miffy Rigby, editor of newly launched Swill magazine and former editor of The Good Food Guides and Time Out Sydney. With this cachet of credentials, Miffy comes as a beacon of good taste and as a storyteller at heart, not only articulates the lingo of food, but confidently speaks to the language of fashion. Like any good story, Miffy's foray into the world captivates you from the onset and leaves you wanting for more. You'll get adventure, wit, character development and originality as Miffy throws light onto the forces that shaped her style. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Miffy's story. Thank you, Miffy, for having me here today at Shady Pines. Um, You're obviously known as uh, a beacon of good taste in Australia. Um, and I'm literally going to take those words to start the conversation off because um, I want to throw l- literal light onto your story. My understanding is that you grew up in a lighthouse. Can we start there? We can start at the lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell me, how did, how did you come to grow up in a lighthouse? Well, so my dad uh, is a died in the wall National Parks guy. And so... In the 1980s, he kind of started off, you ever go bushwalking around like Blackheath or Katoomba or any of those upper mountains areas? Dad built those like tracks by hand with a donkey. Like, so there are amazing photos in the Blue Mountains Gazette of dad like pushing a, jon- a donkey by the bum up through these walking tracks, like putting these stones in piece by piece. And, um, and so he's always been that guy right and but who is that guy like what's that I guess guy that guy is like the ron swanson of australian like parklands right he's just um he loves the bush he loves animals he loves he just he loves being outdoors mm. and so this job came up in byron bay to work for the national trust where the, the lighthouse sits and he got the job and so my my grandmother had moved up there ahead of us in the very, very early 80s. And so she was already up there. I remember like visiting the lighthouse one day going, like, I'd love to live here. And then only a few years later, dad got off of this job. We packed up. So you um, were in the Blue Mountains? Yeah, we yeah. packed up uh, We packed up the Kingswood, piled in. And I remember then, yeah, we just were suddenly living on top of a cliff, like at Australia's most easterly point. And the light from the lighthouse would consistently flash through my front window. Yeah. And I guess I was kind of like uniquely privileged because I also had the first sunrise in Australia through my bedroom window every morning. Um, how old were you? Uh, we moved up there when I was eight. Right. Yeah. So what do you think that, like, how do you think that, because it's obviously such a unique experience. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, how do you think that shaped you? Well, you know, I was such a dork growing up because I lived so far away from everyone else, yeah. like to get to school even every day, we had to scale the side of a cliff down that walking track, 
get the bus with all the rich kids and we were like, I mean, we lived up there for free. Yeah. Um, and then, so I was always kind of in sort of socialising with kids that were probably like way out of my socioeconomic, <laughs> like way out of my pr- my price bracket. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, I guess I was always a little bit of the odd one out and, and most of the time I just wanted to either like be on my surfboard or skateboard or just being outdoors or sitting on the side of a cliff imagining and like, I don't know, I was just, um, I was just a little different, I yeah, guess. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really fit in that well. How did your mum deal, like it, when your husband's like, oh, we're going to go well, live in a lighthouse, is that? So my parents is, separated when I was one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so they, like, were, they were a bad fit from the beginning. Right, okay. Um, so so I actually grew up with my dad. Yep. Uh, and so it was never really a conversation. It was just like we just lived where he wanted us to go and yeah. it was always somewhere cool. Yeah. 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 So the misfit part, did you feel like? you kind of just lent yourself into those recreational activities as a way of just yeah, or you just liked those things? Well, I think growing up somewhere like Byron Bay, if you don't love being outdoors and love being in nature, Mm. you're you're going to suffer. You're going to (laughs) suffer, basically. So so, so there's always the encouragement to be out and be doing stuff. Um, But, you know, it was a funny, it's a funny place because you look at Byron now and it's a town of, Chris Hemsworth's and mm. Matt Damon's and yeah. this is like it's probably like the Palm Springs of, of Australia mm. but back then it was this strange dichotomy of fishermen's kids and farming kids and rich kids mm. and so there it was it was a sort of a town full of oddballs in its own way yeah and I kind of feel like it's maybe not so much that anymore yeah but yeah no I never really fit in because it's sort of like on one side you had all like the the really kind of fabulous salty surf kids were all like super ripped and like the girls it was very puberty blues that way like the girls were all really gorgeous and like the guys were also really gorgeous and then there were like the incredibly rich cool kids and so if you're kind of in the middle and a bit sort of dumpy and weird looking and liked art and like sort of just pottering about and saying strange things then it was probably never going to be a good fit for you (laughs) or me. so storytelling is obviously like a big part of your mm. your actual story, but was that big part of your childhood as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I I was like reading before I went to school. Um, my my grandmother was just a massive book fiend, and so the first thing I kind of ever learned to do after walking and swimming was read. Mm. Um, but interestingly enough, like my school career was always terrible. Like on paper, it was no. So honestly, like naughty. I'm really, not naughty, just not engaged. Right. Just like I just didn't, I didn't really care for the work. I was bored all the time. Mm. And I don't know, I just like my brain doesn't really work with that particular type of like rote learning. Mm. I, I learn by telling stories. I learn by reading, like thinking about the information then being able to give it to you in this other way. Mm. So it was always really great with essays and things, but the idea of sitting down and like, like learning by rote, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of your dad, like your, your relationship with him and him shaping that, like is that how you guys would engage around the table? Like, you know, yeah. where he was uh, telling stories of your day and that was... Absolutely. So dad actually, from, again, from a very early age, he would write stories for me and illustrate them and tell them to me before bed. So storytelling was always a big part of our family. Mm. And... And yeah, I mean, dad, 
dad was always very encouraging of anything I wanted to do, including leaving school when I was 17 because I wasn't very good at it and I didn't really see the point. Yeah. He was just like, all right, well, I can see the argument for it. You do what you need to do, but also know that you have to do it yourself. Yeah. It's very all about self-starting. Yeah. Mm. Um, in terms of that beach culture that you obviously engage with still yeah. and, and the kind of, you know, as we said, you're in Byron, uh, if, you, if you don't love nature, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> but you present obviously now as this almost beautiful 40s, 50s pinup girl. Um, I'm sure you didn't come out of the womb looking like that. Did you? Oh, did you? Of course I did. <laughs> Red lipstick. Yeah, ready. <laughs> beautiful girls. Um but did you did you kind of engage with that surf culture in terms of uh, like identity and representation when you were little? You know, living living in Byron. Mm, yes, but I think I was talking to my partner about this the other day. I think since the age of three or four, I've been obsessed with clothes. Right. Obsessed with getting dressed. Obsessed yep. with like characters and 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 putting things together and thinking about the stories that could be sort of behind a particular outfit mm. and so I've always been sort of fascinated and like a little bit of a chameleon I guess in Byron because it is a it, it is kind of a surfwear community what well, was back mm. in the 90s yeah, surfwear yeah. community and that's what you wore mm. so but as I got a little older and I kind of spent a bit more time in Sydney and I, I was you, you came to Sydney quite to, early yeah to study theatre is that right I was in uh, Bathurst studying theatre right uh, but I actually came to Sydney a little earlier and was just short order cooking and bumming about just doing shitty jobs and like I would see people like dressed and no matter what it was I saw the self-expression and I really I've always loved that mm -hmm. I've always loved people being able to tell stories through the way they get dressed, no mm. matter what it is. So I read somewhere that, you know, you packed a little vintage oh, bag yeah, when, you, I did. when you left Byron. Dad's yeah. crying. <laughs> Got on the XPT. Um, yeah. And, and I guess I'm trying to build an image of what that girl looked like, you know, like if self-expression through fashion was important to you from day dot. Oh, yeah. I can tell you what I was wearing. Yeah, go tell me. Okay, tell me. so it was like these black velvet flares and then on top of them it was a tie-dyed purple silk slip. Right. Because that's Which, very it? Byron. Very Byron. It was like 96, time. 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really like emblematic of that and then a lot of eyeliner. Yeah. yeah. So what's all that contrast? What, what was that saying about you then? Ah, uh, I guess that was like the crew that I was rolling with. Yeah. I mean, everyone sort the of dressed like that. The black velvet with the slip dress. Yeah, it's what everyone was wearing. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> that, like it would always like kind of veer between that or if I was riding my skateboard, it would be like old man pants and a t-shirt. Right. Or, that kind of raver look. Yeah, that yeah. raver look. Yeah. Um, but I never really committed that hard with it. So the, the like my wardrobe at home as it is now is always very diverse. Mm. Yeah. So moving away from like your well your home or your your dad being I guess your home yeah um how, what started to be like the major influences on you because it, it's a big move to be what were you seventeen yeah seventeen yeah. I like I I kind of just slipped from house to house for a little while and then I guess it was you know what it was it was like hospitality culture that really became my new home mm. and so from that first job I had like washing dishes and making pancakes to the- Because you ate pancakes I was, the yep. <laughs> um, back in the day, yeah, that was my first job. I used to work 11 at night till seven in the morning. 
with my one of my best friends, Philip Buffler, who is now this like incredible interior designer. Right. Um, and he actually, again, was another person who influenced me outside of like what I considered good or right when it came to getting dressed. He just had this other thing going all together. What was his thing? He was just always expensive and I didn't really understand that like because I would just get dressed from Vinnie's and the Salvos and whatever I could sort of pull together from from his secondhand stores and he would get dressed in boutiques. So mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like I don't understand how you can spend that much on clothes but I love it. Yeah. Um, little did so I know always that. Always looking sharp, was it? Always. Yeah. And like little, you know, once you kind of get a little bit addicted to wearing nice things, it is hard to then go back to fossicking yeah. through Salvo's bins. Yeah, well, I've, I've gone full circle, so. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I, well, I know it's very like off, like it's very off to even be saying that you'd be shopping new now because secondhand is everything again, yeah. which is cool. Was vintage part of like the way that you dress out of necessity or definitely. desire? Oh, definitely out of necessity. But the, I was always surrounded by people who knew how to get dressed with any budget. Mm. And so a lot of the challenge was putting together really cool outfits from things you could find at the shop. So like if we were going to a party, we would we'd go to Vinnie's or any of the secondhand stores around Byron, pick stuff up cut it up, re-sew it, make new outfits and then go to the party that night and whatever we sort of like put together. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you learn those skills though? Like I don't know, I just made them up as I went along. (laughs) Just worked it out. Yeah, right. Put your foot down and go. (laughs) Good on you. Um, So you've like, so you going back to the idea that you found a bit of a home in the hospitality Mm. industry, that obviously has been a, a point of guidance for you but um you you know going back to the idea as well that you weren't a rote learner but Mm. you um you've become this beautiful writer that we you know we all know you as and storyteller yourself Mm. and when I hear you tell um that moment it it feels like a light just switched on for you when you realize that you actually could write really well is that is that fair to say oh yeah I mean I guess it was a light that switched on when I realized I wasn't not bright yeah um because my marks at school on paper don't look like a very clever person like it's all you know c's and d's and the occasional winner of a b um but for the most part yeah it i just kind of always thought that i just kind of skate through doing average jobs being a sort of an average person Mm. because i i wasn't very good at school and then when I went to TAFE um, a little bit later down the track and went and redid my HSC, I, I realised that I could do it all through essay writing and research. And then I realised that actually it was just the way that I'd been learning, not how my, like what was actually in my brain. Yeah. Um, and it's a really lovely feeling because once you can kind of unlock the power of reading and, and, and finding different ways of telling stories, I don't know. I just feel like it's like when you learn to ride a bike with fluidity or swim or run or do something where it becomes effortless because you have the flow, Mm. that's the light moment when you truly feel like you're just flying through the task. The muscle memory is there. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you put those things together though? Like, because it, how did you put the food and the writing together? How did that come about? Well, so when I eventually went to uni, yeah. um, I so I went to CSU in Bathurst and I started off doing a commercial radio degree because I thought 
Okay, well, I just didn't read the tag properly. <laughs> and I thought what it was was radio journalism, when in fact what it was was learning how to run small community radio stations. Okay. And I did it for a year and it was just an absolute disaster. Right. Like disastrous. It was micromanagement and macromanagement and numbers wow. and coming up with ad jingles. Yeah. And I was just in this class full of people who really like dug that stuff and I was like oh I've made a terrible 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 mistake how am I going to last for three years and while I was doing that I was also working like two or three jobs around Bathurst in kitchens mm. and I remember at one point like one of the kitchens was like do you want to just like do your apprenticeship and we'll pay your way through and you just like quit uni now you're obviously not liking it and I was so close to it but around the same time I'd made some friends in the theatre degree and they were like no 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 it's audition time soon, just come and audition and change. And I sort of got through the audition pro process, changed the degree, suddenly was like writing scripts and making costumes and sets and mm. doing all the back of house stuff I always really loved. Yeah. And, but learning how to, you know, actually sew properly. Yeah, yeah. Do all this stuff. And it was like, oh, okay. It's, it's possible to sort of just keeping working in restaurants, but also have that creative drive at the same time, do something a little more. And so as I was getting to the end of my tenure at uni, I kept thinking like the thing I want is to combine the two, but I don't know how. Maybe it's food styling, maybe it's um, I, like recipe writing or mm. I, don't, I didn't know what it was, but I knew that that was the only choice I kind of felt comfortable with. Mm. And, and was it because food felt like home to you then? Yeah, absolutely. And it still does. I yeah. mean, working for... Uh, Swill House now who have Shady yes. Pines and all these other wonderful restaurants. I mean, it's kind of this full circle where I'm making a magazine for these guys working in their hospitality family and it's like ideally what I always wanted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you saw that even from your like pancakes on the rock stints. Yeah. 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 I just always, and I guess it's time, right? Like all after all of those years of just working away you kind of finally, I don't know, I guess I just finally found the the right groove to, to sort of get comfy in. Yeah. But the so, reason I um, the reason I got into being able to successfully write in the first place was because my partner at the time was the deputy editor at Gourmet Traveller. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. That, that helps. <laughs> what nepotism. <laughs> uh, but he, he was fantastic in that, like, he was like, you've got a great voice, but you need to learn how to write properly. And he mm. showed me how to do it. Right and basically showed me the mechanics. Once I had the mechanics under control, people just started hiring me and, I, and it just sort of rolled on from there. What kind of era were we talking like, what, Ooh, about? That would have been mid-aughts, so 2004, right. 2005. Okay, Yeah. right. So we're getting like a digital presence on like... Not quite, but almost. Yeah. Like, yeah, you could find articles online, but it wasn't really like the way that you'd read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you obviously became a food critic and, and worked with Time Out and, mm. and Good Food. Um, one of the things that I uh, I heard you say in a previous podcast was that, you know, when you, you, when you were looking at other restaurants in terms of like the, you know, the critique or mm. the assessment, there was a sense of um, doing things in an original way mm. or doing things classically and doing them really well. Do you want to flesh that out a bit? There is this great danger in people who write about food with their own personal bias, their own personal taste. Mm. You can't have any. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of hired to have great taste, but you can't 
let your personal taste interrupt the reporting of the thing you're reporting on. So mm. say we're at Shady Pines and I was reviewing this bar. Um, to me personally, this is my favourite bar in Australia. Yeah. But I can't at any point let that bias interfere with the work of reporting what this bar is. Mm. So you've got to remove yourself in, in this really strange way and you'll write about the atmosphere and the drinks and the people and the feeling. And through that and through sort of hitting these certain points, you can sort of come to, you get to a point where you will come to a score or you'll come to an evaluation. Mm -hmm. It's very kind of numbersy and clinical in a funny way, but then you have to take all of that and then weave that into a very beautiful story. Yeah. While not letting your own personal bias leak in. So a couple of things coming out of that. Is, is there a factor that's not measurable, but like, you know, how do you, how do you understand the atmosphere of that place? personality. I think it's person, I, I, like, honestly, like, even though I don't review anymore, I still think about that process and the mechanics behind it. Mm. And I'm always thinking about why, like, yeah. what is the why? And it's personality. Yeah. And it's the personality behind the thing and the courage of their own convictions. So no matter what the thing is, and no matter if it's to my taste or not, if it's an authentic experience where that person has basically taken what's in their heart and in their mind and created something, mm. you can't like you can't sort of take away from that because it's theirs and it's completely individual. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because in contrast to what you had to do, you know, um, the, the idea that they have to bring themselves into their environment but also into their food uh, is like become a big way that we understand food now like the identity of the chef and their background comes into the way that we understand their food and, and value it and enjoy it as consumers not as critics you know not as Absolutely. informed smart you know like educated people that have a specialization in this industry I think generally we all have kind of come to understand that. Um, I, I find it really interesting because in contrast for fashion, I don't know that everybody has gotten there yet, you know, but. No, I think there's so, so much work to be done on that front. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I guess the interesting thing is no matter who you are when it comes to food um, or restaurants or bars or cafes or whatever that thing is, the story is everything. The mm. story of what that place is, what it represents, who's behind it is everything. And then you can make your own mind up as to whether you want to take part in this story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, I can see that with fashion as well, though. You can, but do we all, we, I don't know that we engage in, a, in the same. Because um, it's too exclusive. It's still very elite and um, it's very sizest. Mm. So for me, I'm like, I only really engage with brands that will make a size 16. Yeah. Then I make a size 16, they can get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, honestly, I mean, like, how yeah. hard is it? I asked a pattern maker about this once and I'm like, yeah. why do things stop at a 14? Yeah. Why? Um, is it, do you need a new pattern if you go above a 14? They said, you don't need a new pattern until it's a size 20. Mm. So why can't brands make a, make products up to a size 18 or 20? I truly believe it's because they don't want to see pe bigger people wearing their clothes. Going back to your experience though, of like, you, you know, you, you've tasted everything, right? And, um, you've got to, got to, you're in these roles where you have to take yourself out of the picture a little bit. Mm. But you're probably learning so much, like you're exposed to so much new, like not new things, but original ideas um, and 
things that I'm sure would influence you get the bored way quickly. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, you get bored really quickly, and well, you do in that job. I don't anymore. It's really nice. Yeah. Now I've got a much longer attention span, <laughs> and I don't have to go to things in the week they open. Now I'm like, I know that thing is there. And it's on my list and I'd really like to go. And within the next six to 12 months, I'll go there. Yeah. And I'm not in a hurry because I don't have a thirsty need to feel heard on this issue. Yeah. And just do my own thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it is an interesting one. You do get bored pretty quickly. You do, um, like, because so much of what you do is so trends driven mm. in, like, media specifically, not within hospitality, but, like, you're constantly needing to find the next big thing or the next cool thing or the, or the thing that's going to get you clicks and get people to you know, engage with the page for longer. And um, I think for on that front, you're constantly dismissing. Right. And you don't, I think that the filter process is such that you're only looking for the most pure, the funnest, the brightest, the loudest, the newest. Mm. You're not thinking about what other value that could have on that, you know, broad spectrum of coolness when it comes to great venues. Yeah. So how did you find in those roles then when you're having to to like search for that newness and, you know, as you said, there's repetition, so you do get bored quickly, but how was that affecting your sense of self? Uh, like when I'm not happy, I get ragey and I'm outraged <laughs> all the time. Like, how could you? And it's like, or you could leave. Like you don't need to be here being outraged. You could just yeah. go and do something else. Yeah. But um I found it really difficult because I was always struggling, especially like at this time of the year, we've got the Good Food Guide Awards on, right? So like last, what day of the week are we in? Wednesday. Monday was the Melbourne Good Food Guide Awards and then next Monday is the Sydney Good Food Guide Awards. Mm. All that will be happening in that newsroom at the moment is what's the next trend? What mm. are we writing about? Mm. How can we group these things together? How, how, how? And it's like you're already so fatigued by putting together a whole book of restaurants mm. You just can't even think about what those trends might be or, or how you should be grouping these things together. It's like exhausting. Like yeah. You're fatigued by it. And so I've always hated and raged against anything trends-based. Right. I hate it. Right. I feel like it, it, it denigrates great quality things because something of value is built to last, not built to get clicks, mm. I guess. Mm. And so in terms of your personal style then, how does that idea translate? Um, it, I suppose I just, it's, <laughs> I have the internal rage with my own clothes as well. <laughs> because I, I guess I'm a bit of a bower bird sometimes in that I just, I love like picking little bits from different trends and what's happening. And I love the fact that there's this big 90s resurgence, resurgence at the moment because like I can grab from that and, um, I can just feel a little bit like I'm 17 again. It's really lovely. Yeah. And But then I, I, I'm always my absolute most comfortable in that kind of late 30s, early 40s kind of new look style, that feeling of, like that kind of Wallace Simpson-esque, like sporty, sometimes a little bit um, gender neutral, but always like just so flowy and beautiful. That's yeah. my favourite. Yeah. Yeah. Why then? Uh, because there's something aspirational about it, I guess, um, to be able to dress like that kind of, it always makes me feel beautiful, at mm. all, but I always feel so comfortable. And um, 
I don't know, people are always smiling when you get really nicely dressed. But what do you think it is about that era that oh, you're fascinated with? The lock, I'm super hourglassy and those clothes just sit properly on me and I find it really difficult generally it, with modern fashion and modern cuts to get them to sit on my body in a way that I find attractive. Yeah. Like, but is it that simple? Because you all, you, like, yeah, like I, I'm, I no, get that no, that you, comes into dig it. Dig away, dig away. Yeah, but you're, you know, your your beauty trends, are, like, are specific to that era too. Your yeah. hairstyle, your makeup. because oh, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel sexy. It makes me feel like people are going to look at me. But then, I feel confident to dress that way. But I think when we return to an era that, yeah. you know, we're, we're returning to the story of that era as well. And I'm, I, that's yes. what I guess I'm trying to dig yes, away. Yes, yes, Okay, so, well, then no one's ever asked me before, so now I have to actually think <laughs> about it. I've never thought about it before. <laughs> that's exactly what this Great. is supposed to do. Um, so, all right, well, let's think about it. So the era that I like the most is not so much the 1950s because I find the 1950s innately kind of like, like, I don't know. Because I, I in preparing for this interview, you know, I'm thinking of your polka dot dresses yeah. and you in a diner and I'm like, is it an association with food nah, and nah, like nah. youth so culture? and Not like so the, much. So for me, I like the 40s. Yeah. I like the 40s. And it's kind of nerdy. Like post-war 40s? Post-war. Like, you know, post-war because there's a little bit more material going around. That new look is just coming in. So it's Which is of, that very defined, yeah. people don't understand that's the Dior new look that you're referring yeah. to. The very defined waistline and the, you yeah. know, the hourglass kind of shape we've gone from more kind of static uniform kind of wartime yeah. basics to that very defined feminine look and that a little was a bit more material yeah to, to throw around right it's not so yeah not so like kind of made out of bread sacks and, yes um, a bit more decadence yeah there's yeah. a bit more decadence uh but at the same time we're not heading into that kind of dinery 1950s yeah. rockabilly thing which I'm, i think when i first started um kind of dressing a particular way when I was about 18, yeah. I guess. And, like, my version of that would be, like, 1950s dresses and combat boots and little gloves and hats yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I like anything I could dig out of other people's closets. Yeah. And I sort of in some ways have sometimes also veer back to that. Like, I love a combat boot and a 50s dress. Like yeah, it's, it's a contrast. Is, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. contrast. But um, the, the why is an interesting one. I love the teddy girl aesthetic, which is a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And that teddy girl aesthetic is great denim, but it's yeah. men's denim and men's blazers. And rolled up jeans. Rolled you know, up jeans yeah. and loafers. And, and white socks. White socks yeah. and this sort of Victorian duster coats. And it was that first example of people going through thrift shops and expressing themselves in a non-uniform way. Mm. And so I, I've always loved that. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, I've always just loved Chaparelli and those 1930s and 1940s. It's so fun. I'm laughing because, like, it's such an extreme contrast between, like, more masculine styles yeah. found on I women. Like it all. And then ultra feminine, yeah. like, Chaparelli and the yep. new look. And, like, it's pretty much as feminine as I like, know. Get I told you I'm an owlbird. I've got no <laughs> one particular style. Yeah. Because I was brought up with a single dad yes for the most part my clothes have always been I was total tomboy well that's what I'm trying to put together as well like you've grown up in this lighthouse yeah with your, absolute your tomboy dad absolute tomboy by the but, beach and but. now you're in these heavier clothing you know like you're attracted to these heavier pieces yeah that are, yeah so but well sorry. but so I <laughs> even when I was much younger 
dad would always be like throwing me in overalls and volleys and yeah. I would rage against it. I hated it. Yeah. I just wanted a dress. All I wanted in the world was to look like the other girls and wear a dress and dad would be sticking me in like dickies and sneakers <laughs> and pulling my hair into one of those ponytails where the hairs are like popping out. Yeah. It's like because it's very practical and you won't have to tie your ponytail up again and you'll thank me later. Was it just you and your dad? Yeah, for a long right. time. Right, so yeah. you were probably, may I hazard a guess, that you were probably looking for that feminine influence totally. in your life right absolutely yeah. and yeah. so I, I always wanted the dresses but i never yeah. got them yeah and then in byron there's no point yeah like, it's hot yeah you, you just wear shorts yeah um and as you get a little bit older you start experimenting with small skirts and you get in trouble for it and like <laughs> all of that but yeah. essentially like growing up there i it was just whatever i found in the vinnie's bin mm. um and then finding my own way around that so now it sounds as if what you know the things that you're attracted to sounds like a cultivated mix of what your, your dickies so. and your overalls that your dad used to like to dress you in yeah and that ultra feminine burst that you were seeking out yeah but yeah. i get bored <laughs> i get so bored as the problem with me generally yeah i get so bored wearing one type of thing, thing. yeah yeah so, but those things do. I mean, I'm I'm going based on social media, and you you know, you're just your profile on the internet. Yeah. Those things do that. That flavour is quite distinct in, in totally in terms of when you know images of you. Yeah, and yeah. you do cultivate that to a certain point yeah. because it's nice to have a certain amount of armour between you and the outside world. Mm -hmm. So if you can make a distraction such as beautiful clothes and you're like look over here look over here don't look here look over here then yeah. people are not going to like delve so deep as you're doing today yeah. and find out why you make certain choices and do certain things yeah. you know they're just looking at this like uh, idea of what they have an idea of what they think you are and then I'm like that's fine you just stick with that yeah, because yeah. then you won't ask me any questions yeah, yeah. <laughs> well I'm gonna ask no I love it I love it but that's why now, well, you're saying you're a bowel bird and, you know, like obviously that you you have the joy and the fun of like, you know, the art of dressing is something that sounds like you I are really it. wedded to. Yeah. Does what you choose ever have a relationship to food? Nah. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Even food culture. Nah. But the act of getting dressed, you nah, know, to go again, out for dinner. That's my armour. Right. That's my war paint. Okay, explain that. Well, so... When I used to review restaurants, mm. it's a very front-facing job. Yes. People are looking at you. People are watching your every move. And that's not me being weirdly egotistical or, like, you know, paranoid. It's just a fact that if you're a person of profile in a particular industry like that and you're standing between them and a, a livelihood, like one, two, three hats, changes how much money you're bringing into a mm. restaurant, mm -hmm. At that bare level, people are going to be looking at you. And I feel like there's two parts to it. Like one is I want to separate my personal life to my professional life. Mm. And so I like to get very dressed for that. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of that is that I feel like there's a level of respect and honour when you go into a restaurant or bar or you're going into somebody's business that you look nice for them mm. because it's a, it's a lovely thing to do. It's a mark of respect. Sure. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you don't want to show in, in what you wear? I, or through It's, through it's your... not so much what I don't want to show. It's about keeping a level of privacy. And mm. when you're out every single night for your job and you work every single day, you don't get a lot of your own private time. Yeah. 
and I like having, I don't know, I like being at home and just tying my hair in a bun and not wearing any makeup and wearing a pair of shorts and t-shirt, <laughs> gross pair of teethers. Like, yeah. I'm like, but that's my personal time. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not as obviously as performative. Like there is a performative absolutely. aspect to yeah. the way and you get dressed. I love that. Yeah. I love performing through my clothes. Well, because you're a storyteller. Yeah, right? and it yeah. makes me happy and I'm like, oh, look what I've made. Yeah. See, <laughs> like all the bits together. Did you recognise? Yeah. It's, like, it's great. But then I also like having my quiet other side of me that people don't see. And yeah. that's nice for me too. So Going into the food industry then, when we think about food personalities, mm. like traditionally they haven't been very overt dressers, if you like, if that's the way to describe it. You know, they're, they're not particularly loud dressers. We associate the chefs in kind of all black, mm. Out, even outside of work. They almost wear just a uniform. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they don't, that there has been an association of chefs and food people, um, you know, not wanting to uh, use dress as a means of storytelling? Mm, I guess because the, their means of storytelling is what's on the plate. Mm. Um, and it's not about who they are. that's the only reason? Well, I think if you're a chef worth your, worth your cannellini, you're probably not really all that interested in people telling your story or who you are you're interested in people telling the story of the thing that you've made yeah what they, they're makers they're artisans they're not personalities yeah and if they're personalities you've got to kind of like wonder but that line is now like uh, changing a yeah. lot right yes and no okay I think that there have always been profile chefs mm. but I don't think like I don't think that you need to sell yourself to sell your restaurant mm. You need to but sell you, your food and the experience. It's not who you are. But, the, like, I understand why that might have come to the fore because now we want to know. As, you know, mm. we want to know because it gives us more joy with the food. You know, we want to know more about who that, is, that person is and their story behind their food. That's true, but that's what you want, not yeah. what they want. No, true. Yeah, and what they want is to have a restaurant where people come, come. and enjoy the experience and enjoy the food and the thoughtfully matched wines and the atmosphere and the music and the the beautiful ceramics and the furniture mm. and who they are is like well I don't know I, I just don't think it's as important and I would hazard that most chefs who are great also don't think it's as important. Don't you think though there might be more pressure now? Yes yeah. absolutely yeah. there's definitely more pressure and these poor bastards are like have PRs who are pressuring them to be taking interviews and going on TV and yeah. You know, and it does, that's the thing. Like you go on MasterChef and your revenue is just like Pfft. Yeah. But then you kind of have been on MasterChef and all of the people that are coming into the restaurant all the time are not necessarily regulars. They're one-offs who saw you on MasterChef. Yeah. So it's not necessarily always, it's like a, what do they call it? Like a furry victory? A short, like a, ah, cheap dopamine hit. Yeah. 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 So going into Swill Magazine, we'll, we'll get into the magazine in a sec, but one of the, things that I obviously gravitated to in, in this first issue is the photo shoot. Mm. And the photo shoot is 
a really interesting mix of this conversation. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's food people wearing workwear, but with a spark of their own sense of self in it. And they were all so uncomfortable. yourself. <laughs> they were so uncomfortable. They hated every yeah. minute of it. No one wanted to be there. So what's your idea behind that then? Well, like, tell me what that story yes. is. So I always thought about community with chefs and restaurateurs. And I always think as you know, and I was, I was thinking about like the fact that during the last few years, when restaurants had sort of shut their doors and they were on the breadline for a lot of them, they were doing things like making really cool merch and finding other ways to tell their restaurant story. And a lot of that was clothes yeah, or um, coasters or stubby holders, sunglasses, all sorts of things. And I was like, I didn't want to mention COVID at all in that article. I just wanted the idea of taking these people out of a setting they're comfortable with and getting them to celebrate other people's restaurants. So the idea was to just cross-pollinate the community. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. It was, yeah. uh, and which brings me to the magazine, which I, I feel like I'm not going to have the articulate words that you would have to just describe my experience as a reader of it. But it, it is beautiful, not enough, um, and it, it kind of almost feels a bit too vapid to describe it. But what I will say is that Every time I turned a page, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> or, um, you know, like one image of George's restaurant in Double Bay. I mean, like for me, that's a massive nostalgic hit. I used to go there with my mum and have strawberry crepes. And that's, oh. I only ever used French crepes as, that's all I knew as pancakes growing up. I didn't know what a, a big thick pancake was. How dare you? Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, to, like looking at the masthead and seeing that Evio, our mutual friend has designed the magazine. It's just like, a, and obviously your, your beautiful articles, it's so, there's so much in it. And I think the point um, of why it's so lovely is because it crosses over all the things that I love uh, kind of culturally but also you just keep referencing like there's all these lovely little reference points and it's not like something I've seen before you know it's not it's you you're getting um, an insight into you know little worlds that you don't otherwise have access to like that there's I'm going to go into too much detail now, but I'm genuinely this excited about it. But you know that first article where you've got different food people kind yes. of talking about the their... Yeah yeah, 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 And how, like, the restaurants that are... Oh, sorry. Great zero-star restaurants yes, of the world. One. Yeah. I'm like, that to me is like, oh, she's gone full circle. That's like the original timeout stuff off yeah. the beaten track. Uh -huh. That's how I want to go see a city, right? Yeah. I'm like, that's so exciting because we don't get that anymore, you know? So, um well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> team effort, team effort. Uh, but reading the your editor's letter, I think that, I mean, you put it perfectly, that Anton kind of just dictated, the, like the only thing that you had to do was make it weird and beautiful. Yep. And I just loved that. Um, so tell me what weird and beautiful means to you. Weird and beautiful means, it's a tough one. It's a bit like my wardrobe. It's everything. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, the hard thing is when people have come to us with great pictures, the sort of pictures that would run so nicely in Tea Magazine or Qantas or Good Food or the New York Times. And I read it and I'm like, no, nope, it's not it. Why isn't it it? I don't know. Mm. I don't know why it isn't it, but I know it isn't. Yeah. And it's been this like exercise between me, uh, Anton Forte, my publisher, and then his wife and my art director, Ali Webb. And between the three of us, I mean, we just had our... Um, 
we just had our uh, creative meeting on Monday, actually, for issue, issue three. Two. Oh, issue three. So issue, issue two's two's done. Yeah, oh, I've got oh, some wow. good things to tell you about that too. Yeah. But issue three is like, it, it's a matter of just sitting down and it's like, does this have something to, to do with food? Is there a hospitality angle? Is it weird enough is a big thing? Mm. Or is it a bit too normy? I don't know. Yeah. And it's like, and you just know immediately if you stop breathing and you're like, you know, that's not it. Mm. But if you're like, oh, this gives me the feeling and I can see it on the page and I understand how the story could be told, then that's it. Yeah. Apart from that, I can't tell you what makes sense. So it's just instinct. Complete instinct. It's a, it's a magazine entirely made up of instinct and there are no smart business decisions made in it whatsoever. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, it, it, it's wonderful as a reader, but is the objective just a creative pursuit or...? Well, we want people to read it. We want people to buy ads in it for sure. So and the ads are beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah. We've been really the ads. So I was like, oh, Gary Pacini. I know. I know. <laughs> we were really lucky first time round and yeah. second time round actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I guess what's the objective? Like, what 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 are you guys like? The objective is to create something of value because um, you know I was having this conversation with some photographer friends of mine, both of who have uh, Christopher Paulson, who uh, is a regular photographer for us. And in the second issue, uh, my friend Daniel Bowd, who's a Sydney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've and he's I've interviewed Sabelle. Oh, he's like, beautiful. Well, yes. I'm stalking her at the moment. Yeah, right. But so basically, like, it's it's every wonderful photographer we know. Who, yeah. But, like, so we were sitting down, actually, having a conversation one night, and I was still at Good Food, and KP had brought along his Leica camera and while he just happened to be in town shooting a few bits and pieces. And Dan was like, dude, like, what are you doing with that camera? Are you doing some work with it? And he's like, no, I'm just shooting things as I see them. And, he, and then Dan was like, but not to get paid. And he's like, no, just because I like it. And he's like, I can't remember I did something, the last time I did something just because I liked it. Yeah. And then KP said, I just want to make something of lasting value. Mm -hmm. And it was actually that moment when I was sitting in that pub that I was like, I'm not making anything of lasting value and that sucks. Mm. And so when Anton called me about this project and we, we started to talk about it, I realised that that's what this thing was. It's a, it's, a, it's a magazine and a book almost kind of in a funny way. It's a bit of a hybrid um, that can happily just sit on your shelf forever. Like they're meant to be collectible. They're not meant to be something that you read once and then chuck. Like no. you almost want people to just keep picking it up and picking it up and finding different stories. And that's, I guess that's what my experience of it. Was yeah. That, uh, like every time I picked it up, I just found something else, you know, that I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so that's the yeah. aim. And, uh, and the second one kind of follows through even a little bit more into that kind of evergreen uh, classic sort of storytelling. Like we've got mm. Stanley Tucci in the second one. I know, um, where he just so talks good. about how he likes to set a table and how he yeah. hates it when people don't serve drinks in the right glasses, and that's what we chatted about. Yeah. You know, like... The, so you, you actually... Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I we, know. We just listened... My husband and I listened to his audio book. Oh. Like, just even the story of his, like, wife making the, the chips, the potato, the roast potatoes. Yeah. And she's like, it could be done differently. Yeah, because yeah, he ruins everything he touches. <laughs> So we had a really cool conversation yeah. about that and, yeah. you know, um, we had this amazing photographer who is based in Mexico City and he just went around and shot um, the tortas of Mexico City, which are these like delicious rolls and it's like the classic sort of 
workers' lunch. Mm. And then the, so there are torta restaurants all over Mexico City and he just found kind of the best ones. And so we have this beautiful, almost like National Geographic-esque yeah. spread of incredible sandwiches as told through the eyes of a city like Mexico. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So referencing one of the articles in the, um, you know, in, in the current issue, uh, the sex clown. Oh, yes. <laughs> Something like that. Does that fall in your lap? Like, or are you out seeking that? Like, obviously you, you, you're picking your stories based on instinct, but you, you're going to have to go find some stuff because none of the stuff that you have is necessarily, as you're saying, it's not the overt stuff. It's stuff you're going to have to dig for, right? Yes, but interestingly also no. So through working somewhere like Swill House, everyone knows everyone. Mm. So, you know, we sit in these creative meetings and it's like, have you thought about, MMA Gibson, the sex clown, she, you know, she plays at Frankie's doing, doing like freak flag events once a month. And like, she does these, just the most incredible opera house shows. So you know who she is. And it's like, no, maybe you didn't exactly think of her first time around for it, but somebody else was like, that could be really cool. And then you look at the personalities in the mix and you almost just like lay it, like you lay out like a vague kind of plan. It's like, do all these people work together? No. But is it cool that they don't work together? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we go forward. Yeah. Is it a cool idea? Yes or no? And that's really yeah. And do you think um, do you think stylistically more of yourself is coming through in this? Yeah, adventure? I think the nice thing is that I work with people who are very sympathetic to each other. So Anton and Ali and I, um, and Jordan McDonald, who's currently on dad leave, but like he's also a really important part. Like mm. all of these people have really different ways to tell stories and they view things very differently but there's also this kind of sympathetic undertone and so there's an understanding I guess mm. so yeah everyone's personalities are, are, are all through it but there is a flavor of that masculine feminine you know like there's like you know there's raw sex in it yeah there's like gentle beautiful images yeah you know, like that part of, you know, not, not that you're raw sex, but you are sexy. Oh, but, thank you very much. <laughs> but, you know, you know, like the, I feel like there's a flavour of you definitely Look, coming definitely through. Look, there's definitely a and... fleshy celebration there. And I love that. You know, there's nothing better than a nice bare bum. Yeah. And, like, do you know what? I don't know why we can't celebrate that more in yeah. a food magazine. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, Who makes those rules? No one. But, and, and did you stylistically though like you know it's obviously a bigger format it's print i wanted a magazine that would sit on a shelf in a bookstore or boutique wherever it's being sold and it's quite a lot of places now which is cool mm -hmm. um that would stand out i wanted it to look outrageous yeah and it is like it's a it's not quite a3 and it's like it's weighs a kilo and probably in forward issues going even more yeah um but I don't know. I feel like if you're going to charge $48 for a magazine, you want it to feel of like you're getting the worth. Yeah. Yeah. Weighty. It's in, weighty. In more ways than yeah. One. yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it's an expensive thing to put together. Um, yeah. And it's expensive to buy. Yeah. But at the same time. But it's something that, as we said, you, you, you keep, keep it. it. Yeah. And is that the idea of going into print? Like, yeah. is there any desire to move it into a digital format? No. Nah. In fact, you can have a look on the website and, like, I pop everything on the website, but they're just little excerpts yeah. and they don't translate at all mm. to digital. No, it is very different, yeah. It's really different. Like, I'll pop a few photos up and I'll be like, oh, this looks 
ugly. I don't, like, I hate this. It doesn't look the way it's in my head whatsoever. But you still need to kind of give people something to sort of give them a taste of what it's going to look like. So that's what's online. But essentially, it's it's all about the print product. Mm -hmm. And it does quite well on Instagram as well. But even then, because the stories are so broad-reaching and there are so many pictures involved with them and they're sort of like these, like, epics, they're like, it doesn't necessarily translate to a tiny square on your telephone either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me because I feel like that sense of um, obviously storytelling but the reference points and, mm. like, you know, even the fact that it's print, there's that classic traditionalism in it mm. in a very original kind of format, like, you know, in terms of the actual content. Uh, so returning to those ideas of uh, combining originality and but classic in in the one in mm. the one product and then I feel like that layers through the storytelling so yeah. and and probably is um the thing that we we forget you know like uh because we're constantly on this seek for newness whether it is through food mm. or fashion uh we forget the backstories and even one of so one of the stories that you have where I've referenced that George's restaurant you were saying that we in Sydney restaurants love retro, but they never love vintage. Yeah. Um, so, do you feel like that's a differentiating? Like, is that an, a fair assessment of how you guys kind of perceive things? I think that. So, yeah. 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 That, absolutely. I think um, we just wanted to make something that was properly built to last, unlike a lot of. Kind of, you know, I don't want to see any more odes too. I just want to see things that are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, any other exciting kind of Ooh. stories we can look forward to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So issue two, uh, the rundown for that one is, as we said, the beautiful Stanley Tucci. Mm -hmm. That was a terribly stressful interview, I must say. He's the most famous person I've ever interviewed. Yeah, right. Yeah. And stressful because he's the most famous person you've interviewed? Yeah, and because or... I find him so sexy. And I was like, oh. <laughs> like, do my hair again. <laughs> um, but it Where was, did you interview him? I interviewed him over Zoom and they were like, you can have 7.32 minutes. And I was like, okay. And so I wrote this like list of questions perfectly timed for my 7.23 so, yeah. minutes or whatever yeah. it was. And then... He got comfortable and he was just chattering away. And we got to a point where I'm like, okay, I've timed this badly now because yeah. it's over. All my questions are done. And sometimes I guess, and you would know this, like if you're going into an interview with a certain time frame in mind and a certain direction, mm. you kind of like will order the questions in a certain way and you'll um, you'll, you'll kind of push the, the subject in a certain way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but because he did just get comfy, I ran out of shit to say to him. Yeah, right. And I was just like, got to about the 20, 25 minute mark. And then I was like, hey, Stanley, I got to go. <laughs> and he was like, what? <laughs> Is it? Are you, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure, mate. And then he was like, okay, what time is it there? And I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's nine o'clock at night. And he's like, so it's not 3am. And I'm like, Stanley, mate, I don't look this good at 3am. Yeah. <laughs> It was like, ha -ha. And I'm like, on that, I must go. And then I hung up on him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and how did you feel after that? I felt great. I felt really good for hanging up on Stanley Tucci. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, elsewhere, I also did this, like, speaking of telephone interviews, I did this interview with uh, Vincent Peranio, 
who was John Waters' set designer for every single one of his films bar the very first one. Okay. So Crybaby, Hairspray, all the big ones. Mm -hmm. and oh, you would have hated that. Oh, horrible. <laughs> I hated it. It was terrible. But that was a really, like, because he's 76, 77 and lives in, like, this tiny coastal village in Portugal So and doesn't know how to use the internet. Oh. So it was this, like... I think like they'd be like we played phone tag for about a week until they worked out they I think they employed someone to like pick up the phone for them yeah. eventually and like sat on the phone for an hour just talking away. His wife's name is Dolores Deluxe. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> of course it amazing. is amazing. <laughs> and they had lived in Baltimore for fifty years before emigrating to Portugal. Right. And they had like bought this old row of like dilapidated terraces and then made it into this huge house called the Hollywood Bakery. Mm. And it used to be this like big artist commune and that's how we met John Waters who just came to one of their parties one night. He'd gone to art school there and just never left. Mm. And then he ended up becoming the set designer for um, David Simon who made The Wire, right. which is that huge yeah. HBO show. And that went for five seasons so he also did that so he designed all of that, all of homicide life on the street. Right. And so he became like this, like really good at making morgues. <laughs> and in fact, his morgues became so good that he ended up selling the morgues back to the city. Mm. Yeah. So he was fascinating. Yeah, right. Um, and so then you, you like going dark. Like yeah, there's... I like the mix. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and actually it was quite lovely. So John Waters, I was emailing with John Waters to get the like all of these original set photos. So he was kind enough to supply from his personal archive like all of these wonderful old photos from on set through all of his famous oh, films. I love that. Yeah. 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 So we've got and then there's just like the most beautiful uh Caribbean recipe feature from Chef Paul Carmichael and we had this beautiful fashion photographer Lauren Bamford shoot it. Right. Um yeah, it's like it's so colourful and wild and fun and um just I don't know, it's a good read. We've talked about newness and mm. we've talked about originality. I want to know, like, and you know, you've said, explained that a lot of it's instinct, but how would you differentiate those two things? The difference between newness and originality. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's the hardest question I've ever been asked. Yes. Oh, <laughs> damn you. You know what? I feel like the thing with originality is that is, as we were talking about before, entirely instinctual. Mm. Um, you can't look at other people's work and then, I don't know, it's like whatever you do needs to come from your gut and that's how I think how, and you have to be kind of fearless I suppose as well, like you have to be okay and open for people to like laugh at you or tell you you're shit or um, you have to be okay with failing mm. um, but then also have a confidence to do it anyway. Um, for me originality is is something that is so difficult to come across too because everyone is looking at everything everyone does all the time mm. and that makes it really, really hard to not be derivative. And so I guess one of the things, like, I try not to look too hard at other people's, like, other food media because I don't want to feel too influenced. Mm. I just, I look, and I always have, I've always looked outside of my subject matter to find inspiration yeah, so for me it's always been more about music and books and film and fashion mm. that that sort of bleeds into food than the opposite. That's interesting because my 
natural next question is how do you see the things that are happening in the food industry that are either original or new mm. then influencing other kind of cultural forums? It's interesting, like, um, I think we are in, at the moment, a real holding pattern. I think we're probably on the brink of a pretty big cultural movement, but we're not quite hitting it yet. And I think it's probably because we're, as a civilization, like a Western civilization, or as Australians, let's say, as Australians, I think we're probably more comfortable than ever. And the problem with being that comfortable is that there's very little to rally against or try for. Mm. Um, and so with restaurants and bars, I think there's a bit of an issue at the moment with people just safely just trying to make revenue, safely trying to keep their businesses afloat, which means people are not going to be pushing to that next level quite yet. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we need some discomfort for that to happen. Yeah, which it, it is probably coming, right? It's coming, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You can I smell mean, it. Well, the interest rates alone. The are interest going rates alone. To make people There's too much money around. Um, yeah. What do you think that cultural movement might look like? Have you got ideas about that? I would like to see, I would like to see something punk and irreverent. And, you know, one of the nice things I often see, especially around the inner West, is like little dudes and dudettes, <laughs> guys. Um, guys is a kind of an, a, an all sex term, I guess. Yeah. Um, I love seeing this absolute merging of dressing and expressing. Like I love seeing this genderless kind of self-expression. Mm. I feel like with that happening and the interest rates going up the way they are and the fact that we're probably going to hit some pretty rocky financial times soon feels like there's something in the air and I feel like it's going to be super queer and fabulous and great. Do you think it will translate into food? I don't know. I have mm. no idea. Mm. Um, who knows? Who knows what it's going to be with food? Yeah. Um, I think people are really comfortable with the classics at the moment. People want bistros, people want um, delicious food they recognise because they've got not very much time and money to be spending in restaurants, I guess, or like they're feeling quite risk averse with going out so much. And we have come, uh, we have come out of an era of like high experimentation yes. in food. It's a bit exhausting. And yeah, it's a bit contrived really, now. It feels absolutely right. So, so when you see it and you see somebody like getting experimental, you're like, oh, fuck off. Yeah, mate. I don't want. I don't want, I, I don't want a dust that looks I, like. Don't give Soil a and, Yeah, I just want to eat Boring. a burger or, you know, like... Yeah, or, or like whatever that thing is, it's, yeah. it's it's not... I guess when Farhan Adria made a sand that was edible or a bubble that was edible and there was that huge kind of movement of molecular food, mm. that was super experimental. That mm. was groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, the most amazing farm-to-table stuff that sort of happened a decade or so later, which was a reaction to that kind of unreal food giving you something that was so real your hands are in the dirt mm. that again is like love it or loathe it in terms of it being a bit lofty it is still like an incredible cultural expression we're not there is no cultural expression right now in restaurants i believe but it's coming but i don't right. know what it is and what about you what what's mm. what's on your what's going to be new or original for you coming up Ooh. i mean obviously the magazine is 
a huge feat and there's yes. a lot of self-expression in it. But well, at the moment, this is everything. Mm. This is my baby um, and it's it takes up everything I have mm. um, and I'm happy for it to do that. That's yeah. what it's like you get one opportunity to create something like this and you take it and you put everything you can into it. And my last question, Miffy, is how I end all my interviews Ooh. is when you're an old lady. Yes, I, can't, I cannot wait, honestly. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> I'm very excited about it. What does that look like and what will you be wearing? Uh, so, you know, I've been fantasizing about being 67 for like 20 years <laughs> because I really feel like I'm looking forward to a full head of long grey hair, yeah. like in that really ultra chic, huge, like just ah, oh, silver <laughs> hair. I often say die till I die, but I think if I can get it long enough, yeah, long and thick, that long and thick and, and grey, yeah. like heaven. Yep. And then I think a lot of like men's comedy song, just <laughs> could be a real vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah lots I love of turquoise. Thank you so much, Miffy, um, for joining me today and sharing your smile story. Thank you. While teddy boys and tattoos might be Miffy's thing, she's shy to pigeonhole or put a placeholder on her self-acclaimed chameleonic style. It's hard, though, to ignore her sense of strength and utilitarianism that contrasts with a reach for a feminine spirit that may have otherwise evaded her. Whether you're talking about food or fashion, at the heart of Miffy's style is originality, authenticity and adventure. And her heart is in the art of sharing that story. And as we see the second issue of Swill magazine drop onto the newsstands this week, we have the joy of embracing what is the wonderfully weird, the boldly beautiful and that which is true to Miffy's style and her story.